Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, everybody. My name is John Moser, Professor of History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our uh, continuation of our second season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we're doing a deep dive into a single document, discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's seminars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at TAH.org. And you too can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. The subject of today's program is Franklin D. Roosevelt's Commonwealth Club Address, and to help discuss it are Dr. Lauren Hall, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Dr. Paul Moreno, William and Bernice Grucock, Chair of Constitutional History and Dean of Social Sciences at Hillsdale College. Very nice to see both of you this evening. And uh, so, Commonwealth Club Address. He's in San Francisco. It's uh, in the midst of the uh, of the presidential campaign of 1932, uh, there Roosevelt gives one of his well, one of his most uh, most famous addresses. Um, why is this regarded as so important? I read earlier today that this was rated by uh, experts in political rhetoric as the second best political speech of the 20th century. Um, what do you guys think? Why, why is this? Why is this worth reading today? Should I? Should I? Lauren, go ahead. Paul, go ahead. Well, I, I think the reason why it gets so much attention is that if you look at the 1932 campaign as a whole, there wasn't a lot of differentiation between Roosevelt and Hoover, and the Commonwealth Club address really laid out what, in retrospect to be the agenda of the New Deal in a way that wasn't apparent at the time uh, Roosevelt was campaigning. Okay. So during a campaign where, aside from promising to legalize beer and maybe lower the tariff uh, and cut tax and cut cut spending, FDR is uh, is maddeningly non-specific, but he goes into some detail here. Lauren, care to add to that? Well, I. Yeah, so I'm coming at this from a um, sort of political theory perspective, but one of the things that I think is so important about this speech is that it becomes sort of one of the symbols of how the progressives re rethought or re um, uh, uh, sort of reordered the the principles of the Declaration. So if you look at the end of the of the speech, uh, he he turns the principles of the Declaration sort of on their head, right? So it turn it becomes instead of life, liberty, and the of happiness. Uh, he talks about the uh, right to life, the right to make a comfortable living. Uh, he then talks about a right to his own property, which means the safety of savings, right? So dramatic kind of reformulation uh, of the principles of the founding, where he's clearly uh, sort of reaching back to people like Jefferson and the principles of the founding, but at the same time, fundamentally changing the meaning of um, of those words. And so it, it's a really, from a theoretical perspective, it really lays out kind of the progressive uh, goals of, of dramatically changing the foundations on which government rests. Okay. Um, invoking the founders and the Constitution and the Declaration, 
That is not a rhetorical strategy that the progressives in general are known for. Why does Roosevelt break from uh, from the, the, the tradition established by men such as Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson? Well, I think it was because he recognized that the American people didn't like a frontal assault on the principles of the founders. And even while he was going to substitute a new, a new substance uh, for what the purpose of American government was, he tried to bring the American people along by using the vocabulary and the phrasing uh, of the American founders. I think he learned uh, a lesson from the earlier failure of progressives to make a fundamental change. Hmm. Okay. Lauren, any, any care to add anything to that? I think Paul exactly right. I mean, the the first first two paragraphs are fascinating because he talks about sort of the importance of the achievement of progress, but then immediately appeals to these universal principles. And so there's a clear sort of attempt to uh, sort of speak out of both sides of his mouth, where he's he's clearly articulating a kind of progressive understanding of the role of government, uh, but at the same time wants to be appearing to to be a appealing to these universal principles. Uh, and of course, the question is whether you can have an understanding of sort of universal political principles at the same time that you're appealing to this idea of sort of constant progress. Yeah, I noticed that he keeps going back to uh, rights of personal competency. And he wants to assure everyone that even though he has a different gloss on other rights, specifically those pertaining to property, he has just the same regard for rights of personal competency as uh, as did Jefferson. Um, that yeah, that that did seem like an interesting uh, an interesting effort to establish continuity. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about his. Uh, his his treatment of American or perhaps European history as well. Uh, specifically, David Cedar asked, what do you think of FDR's assessment of Hamilton? Uh, the quote, he was too impatient of slow-moving slow methods. Fundamentally, he believed that the safety of the republic lay in the autocratic strength of its government, that the destiny of individuals was to serve that government, and that fundamentally a great and strong group of central institutions guided by a small group of able and public-spirited citizens, would best direct all government. Uh, was FDR uh, coming off here, trying to come off here as, a, as an opponent of autocratic government? Did, did he think that he himself, as president, would be less autocratic than the kind of regime that Hamilton had in mind? I think he's making a historical argument about the way in which the uh, 19th century, uh, especially under uh, the, the control of the Republicans since the Civil War, had created what he, he frankly calls uh, an economic oligarchy. Mm. Uh, and so he thinks that the, in the same way he says that the, um, you know, the, the centralizers of uh, the founders of early modern European nation states were freeing the people from the control of, you know, the, of, of the feudal barons, that he's going to free Americans, especially the workers, from the control of the plutocrats who've been established by a Hamiltonian system of political economy. Okay. Lauren? Yeah, no, I, I don't know if I can add much to Paul's analysis. I mean, I think he's, he's looking at, at the, the role that Hamilton played in establishing a national bank and sort of establishing this economic infrastructure um, that did, in fact, move us away from the sort of agrarian roots that people like Jefferson want to emphasize. And I think that sort of plays into the progressive narrative that we've that, that partially due to the changes that, that occurred due to industrialization and due to some of uh, Hamilton's, for example, economic policies, that we've crossed this sort of bridge, right, that we're, we're past a certain point where the, the principles of the Declaration may still be, of course, relevant, but they're going to need to be substantively changed. And so I think Hamilton's a nice, a nice figure for him to emphasize, uh, as much as I think that's sort of a straw man, if you look at sort of Hamilton's overall, I mean, certainly the, the piece that he looked out here, the, the Hamiltonian vision of it's the destiny of individuals to serve that government. Um, I'm not sure you see anything exactly like that in Hamilton's thought. Yeah, it, it really does seem like a, like an odd portrayal of, of course, one that comes right out of Jefferson's own interpretation of, uh, of, of Hamilton. Um, why does uh, Roosevelt think that government needs to take on a new role? 
Well, I think the biggest reason is precisely the kind of, uh, he says it very clearly when he talks about the the fact that the new danger, you know, at the time of the founding, the, the original danger was uh, the government, right? But now we have a new form of central power, and the new central power that has di- displaced government power is economic power. It's the power of corporations. And so uh, the only way to combat that kind of really, that central power of corporations is with another power, in this case, government. And so that's, that's where the sort of argument for a federal, uh, the growth of the federal government, the growth of federal administration, um, and then what comes later in the New Deal becomes the way in which the the only way to combat corporate power is with another centralized power, um, in this case, again, the the federal government. Mm -hmm. Paul, you care to add to that? Yeah, yeah. and Theodore Roosevelt made the the same point where he said that just as uh, the American Republic became threatened by the slave power before the Civil War, now the power of, of corporate wealth and the way that it had corrupted the political system, that we were carrying on the same fight uh, that the Republicans did against the slave power and taking on you know, the, the malefactors of, of great wealth. Yeah, just just last month uh, in this uh, in this webinar, we considered the new nationalism speech, and that that very point came up. So it's nice to see it playing out here as well. Um, FDR talks about a a reappraisal of values. Does he believe that government is competent to? to I mean, can, can government do that? Can government can government cause a reappraisal of values? Well, here I think he, he sounds like Woodrow Wilson, where he's saying that the, uh, the idea of what our rights are are always historically contingent. And it's the job of government to constantly keep up with changes in social and economic relations and redefine rights uh, as, as society evolves. So here I think he, he reflects some of the... Um, sort of Darwinian evolutionary uh, thought that uh, Wilson had applied to American politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lauren, anything uh, anything more on that? Yeah, I think it goes along with uh, the, the part of the way that he ends the speech is is the importance of teaching, right? And the greatest duty of a statesman is to educate. That's one of the sort of last lines of the um, of the of the speech. And it, it's interesting because again, that's not sort of a traditional understanding of statesmanship. And so the idea that this concept of education uh, and the role of government is to educate citizens, uh, again, goes along with this sort of this overall goal that that the citizen is going to be the one sort of guiding the federal government through the sort of, you know, general will. But at the same time, it's the job of statesmen, and in particular, the president, right, a strong president, uh, going to sort of educate citizens in, in how to be democratic. Um, and so I think that, that this is part of his overall project of, of using the presidency as um, sort of an extension of the, the uh, bully pulpit, um, using the presidency as a way to not just reflect the popular will, but actually to guide it. And part of that is educating citizens and, in fact, sort of creating a reappraisal of values, as you, as you mentioned. Hmm. Okay. What do we think about... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did, if, I, if I could add to that. Please. There is something a little um, uh, sort of unclear in the progressive uh, idea of you know, presidency and, and leadership in that. Wilson of, often talked about the president as sort of embodying uh, the spirit of the, of the American people. Uh, but he also talked about the president having to lead and shape public opinion in this kind of way. And um, I think you see that as especially with Roosevelt, where sometimes he's ahead of public opinion and sometimes he's catching up with it. Uh, there's a very kind of uh, delicate balance between leadership and you know, whether you're following or leading public opinion in the rhetorical presidency. Hmm. Um, can you give uh, examples of, uh, of, of, of instances yeah. in which he was behind or ahead of opinion? Uh, I think of this uh, in the way in which America got involved in World War II. Mm-hmm. where Roosevelt was, you know, in his heart, when he ran for vice president in 1920, he was a, a Wilsonian internationalist, uh, wanted to get involved in World War II, but largely for domestic political reasons, had to, you know, toe the line of the uh, isolationists in the, in the progressive camp. But as he began to sense that the American people were becoming more uh, alarmed about what was going on in Europe, especially after the fall of France, 
he began to come out and you know sort of lead the American people into uh, into the war. Okay, huh? Interesting. Um, what do we oh, think sorry. is? I just, uh, and if I Wilson did the same thing when it, uh, it came to certain issues that, as an academic, he said the Constitution wouldn't allow uh, federal prohibition on child labor. But then when he began to see as president that to get reelected, he had to you know, sort of rally the progressives around him and change his, change his mind about that. So he becomes a different kind of progressive later in his yeah. presidency. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yes. Certainly. Go ahead. Because uh, if you look at the election of 1912, just like the election of 1932, you would say that Wilson would appear to be, I'd say, the, the most conservative of the candidates in 1912. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as you pointed out, Roosevelt didn't really lay out much other than the repeal of prohibition. But then as president, and especially as seeking re-election, uh, they become much more progressive and much more uh, straightforward about what they, what they want. Was there anything specific in this speech, I'll throw out this question to either one of you, that, or, or anything... Uh, particular that this speech was directed squarely toward? I mean, obviously, generally speaking, the, the economy was, uh, was not in good shape, but was there, was there a particular occurrence in September of 1932 that prompted this, this vision of the future and this account of the past and vision of the future? There may not have been. I'm I, I asking, uh, asking out of uh, out of ignorance here. Well, again, I think that because Roosevelt, he, he did make certain speeches in the uh, campaign. There was uh, one at Oglethorpe University and a few others that people have pointed to saying, OK, here we can see what Roosevelt has in mind uh, for, for the New Deal. And others have said, well, no, Roosevelt really had no coherent, you know, political philosophy. He had no agenda. Uh, he would have various speechwriters. Adolf Hurley was the one most responsible for the Commonwealth Club address, uh, come up with things that he would sort of float and test to see how the public responded. And this particular speech might have just been a, you know, a straw in the wind, kind of a random uh, effort to lay out one version of what the New Deal might be. And since it ended up being the one that was most liked, what the New Deal would be, historians have sort of retroactively, uh, maybe anachronistically, led into it more significance than it had at the moment it was it was given. Okay, You'd Lauren, care to jump in on this? No, I think they did a great job of sort of uh, um, laying out what what was sort of going on at the time and what Roosevelt was was doing. Yeah. What, what is significant about the fact that, uh, well, of course, FDR did, uh, to a greater extent than his, than his predecessors, make, uh, make very liberal use of speechwriters. Um, what's the significance of the fact that Adolf Burley wrote this? Why does that matter? Well, or does it? <laughs> well, there was a, a conflict within you know, democratic circles. Uh, between sort of the centralizers and people who wanted uh, planning and more of what sort of the direction you you ended up taking with the sort of decentralizing Jeffersonian uh, people associated with uh, thought with uh, Wilson and and Louis Brandeis. So all, and then this, this continued throughout uh, Roosevelt's first term where the question of whether you were going to have a more centralized or a more decentralized, uh, approach to public policy was one that uh, Roosevelt never really took sides in, never really uh, figured out. There was a, um, uh, a paradox, a contradiction in so many uh, New Deal policies. Um, Ellis Hawley wrote a mat- magnificent book about the New Deal and antitrust policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he called it, a, I forget, but the, John, you probably remember the, the subtitle was a, um, uh, something in, in, in political ambivalence, you know, that they, Roosevelt would yeah. go back and forth about whether he wanted to you know, increase centralization and cartels in the economy or sick the Justice Department on the on big business and break up, break them up. 
Huh. Okay. Um, he was a, Burley, of course, was a Columbia professor of corporate law at the time. Oh, yeah, the, the Holly book was The New Deal and the Problem of Monopoly, right? Um, which, of course, raises a, a really interesting point because so much of the thrust of the early New Deal was uh, was, the, was in fact the fostering of monopolies through the National Recovery Administration. Um, so, sure, what he's staking out here, he's sort of laying the foundation for, for that kind of New Deal. Um, and that's very much the kind of New Deal that Burley himself uh, was uh, was was interested in. He had, he had been a an F, sorry a Teddy Roosevelt style progressive that said you're not going to be able to uh, get rid of the modern corporation. It's here to stay. Uh, centralization of economic power is in fact as as is not only inevitable but desirable. The problem is and now has to be regulated. Can we speak for a moment about? Uh, Burley slash Roosevelt's uh, account of U.S. and European history that shows up here. Um, he he always sets up this cycle of uh, of of amassing of power, of ruthlessness, and amassing of power, and then rise of countervailing force. To what extent is this good history? Well, I think it's Hegelian history. I mean, it, it's very much sort of str straight out of, uh, you know, Hegel's uh, philosophy of history, where there's this sort of constant cycle of different forces that, you know, uh, and something new gets created every time one is sort of uh, um, overcome. And so I think you see this strong um, Hegelian theme throughout his historical analysis, where there's these kinds of patterns that out of, rather than the kind of cyclical understanding of, of history as sort of continuing to make the same mistake because human nature is kind of stable. Uh, instead, you see this Hegelian theme where, where over time we progress through the, the, uh, the, um, the sort of historical, uh, the dialectical um, sort of interaction between opposing forces. So that's what I saw when I, when I read it. I mean, it sounded, it sounded very much like uh, um, sort of straight out of uh, uh, Hegel crude notes. Hmm. <laughs> Paul, any, any, any care to add that? But also, I mean, he, he fails to recognize the way in which his democratic predecessor, I mean, FDR was a real partisan. Uh, and he's giving an account of history here that makes, you know, Hamilton, the Federalist, and Republicans out to be the bad guys, and Jefferson and the Democrats to be the good guys. Um, and so he doesn't say, for instance, the ways in which Jefferson and the, you know, the, the first Democrats, the Democratic Republicans, ended up adopting, you know, many Hamiltonian Federalist policies, especially after the War of 1812. And his account of the way in which, you know, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and Wilson uh, were the uh, opposing candidates in 1912, uh, also neglects to state that, well, actually, once Wilson was elected, he pretty much adopted Theodore Roosevelt's policies, <laughs> uh, which Roosevelt himself would do. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very partisan history. It's, it's uh, interpreted in a way that uh, tries to um, uh, you know, fit <clears throat> uh, the, the parties into uh, you know, sort of give them an orientation that they really historically didn't didn't have. Yeah, yeah, I found I found this section particularly surprising. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, abandoning the idea of trust busting, was forced to work out a difference between good trusts and bad trusts. Okay, fine so far. And the next paragraph he says Woodrow Wilson, elected in 1912, saw the situation more clearly. And then it does nothing to say how he saw it more clearly than Roosevelt. In fact, he, Wilson adapted Roosevelt's ideas, as you uh, as as you pointed out. Wilson actually uh, Wilson understood sort of the I think the philosophy of history better than he mm. did you know, certainly economic policy. He really didn't didn't understand anything about you know, big business or monetary policy and things like that. And unfortunately. Uh, the guy he went to advice for about this, Louis Brandeis, uh, knew even less or mm. what he knew was wrong. And so in shaping the Federal Reserve Act and the antitrust laws, uh, Roosevelt ends up adopting a policy that is, is much more uh, centralizing. Uh, the Federal Reserve System is just establishing it. You know, uh, Wilson depicted it as an attack on the money trust, 
and especially from today's perspective, that the Fed is the money trust mm. they, that they helped establish. Huh. Very interesting. Um, I think what we we would we would probably agree that the the money quote of this uh, of this reading is and I you know I, I I can't say a page number because I think everyone's printer probably spits this out in, in different ways, but it's page seven on mine. This is the paragraph that begins. All this calls for a reappraisal of values. A mere builder of more industrial plants, a creator of more railroad systems, an organizer of more corporations is as likely to be a danger as a help. The day of the great promoter or the financial titan to whom we granted anything, if only he would build or develop, is over. Our task now is not discovery or exploitation of natural resources or necessarily producing more goods. It is the soberer, less dramatic business of administering resources and plants already in hand, of seeking to establish foreign markets for our surplus production, of meeting the problem of underconsumption, of adjusting production to consumption, of distributing wealth and products more equitably, of adapting existing economic organizations to the service of the people. The day of enlightened administration has come. This seems like uh, a, a, a mammoth task for a government to uh, uh, to take over. Um, how could this be be done and still presume there to be a, a, a private economy? I don't know if I put that question very well. Well, actually, Hoover's response to this uh, speech was interesting because he thought it was uh, uh, that it was sort of a council of despair as if America's best days were over and that we would have to get used to sort of less economic growth, uh, sort of like the way Jimmy Carter talked about this. We have to lower our expectations in the 1970s. But I, I think, on the other hand, Roosevelt was really saying that you know, the, we, we've, the, the economy has matured and we can sort of take for granted uh, production. And what we need is to redistribute it. Our, our task now is... is through enlightened administration, through the bureaucratic state, uh, to especially to redistribute the, uh, the fruits of capitalism uh, away from capital and more towards uh, labor. Hmm. Lauren. Lauren, do you want to care to add to that? Um, I, I just, well, yeah, I want to, and, and I maybe you or Paul know more about than I do, but uh, I, I believe at the time the reaction to the speech, at least in the media, was um, was not terribly positive because I think people were concerned about the the um, overtones or undertones, depending on how you read it, of redistribution and and, and other kinds of um, uh, policies that seemed like they were moving towards socialism. And so it's interesting that in retrospect we view this as such a sort of foundational uh, political speech when. Again, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I think at the time it was it was not received terribly positively by a lot of people for precisely uh, these kinds of paragraphs, right? That talk about a really dramatic reorganization of not just government but society. This is this is interesting because um, I had heard that as well, and I don't know how many times I have read I have read this document. Everyone points to it and says, "This is what you need to read to understand uh, understand FDR's New Deal." If you compare it to so many of his other speeches, this is really dull. It, it, it's not a, it's it's not particularly inspiring. It's a recitation of history, and and yes, if you are looking for evidence of FDR's progressivism, it is a, it, it's it's a worthwhile document because in a way it, it does seem like a, uh, the consummate expression of of, of American of, of FDR's progressivism. But yeah, as as a speech, I was surprised to hear political rhetoricians judge it that judge it so highly because my impression was that that that, that this left uh, uh, the the national reaction, who knows what the Commonwealth Club thought of it, but the national reaction was kind of to yawn. And if 
uh, if Paul is right in saying that FDR was kind of throwing things out there as trial balloons to see what stuck, it seems amazing to me that this would seem to be the blueprint for what FDR would do when the reaction, se- reaction to it seems to have been so tepid. Neither of you care to, to say anything about that. Now, there were other speeches that Roosevelt made in the campaign that provoked similar reactions, especially mm-hmm. from Al Smith, who was his principal rival uh, to get the nomination in 1932, when Roosevelt yeah. sort of uh, intimated that this would be a sort of redistributive, sort of class conflict uh, sort of thing. Smith reacted very, uh, very violently to that. And so Roosevelt uh, backed off from some of that. And I think that's why in the beginning, in the first New Deal with the National Industrial Recovery Act, Roosevelt was a lot, the idea that he wanted to bring people together, that labor and capital could work together uh, through the NIRA was maybe his own reaction to the public reaction to these, these speeches. Hmm. Okay. And then, Lauren, I'm uh, oh, sorry. Okay. And then when that failed in the second New Deal, he took you know, he, he he went back to sort of the class warfare scheme and much more of an anti-business attitude in uh, the 1936 campaign. Hmm. Lauren. Well, I have I, I kind of have a question for you and you and Paul um, as a as folks who who have sort of more of a maybe historical bent than than I do, but it I mean it sometimes feels a little bit like like FDR doesn't really know exactly what he is he is standing for. He doesn't. It seems to me, and and again, uh, I'm I'm open to uh, different interpretations. But you know, when, when I look at Wilson, I that's a guy who I think knows what he wants, sort of out of the presidency. Or he knows what he's trying to. I sometimes don't get the impression that FDR has that same vision in mind, and and it sort of feels sometimes like he tries things out sees what the public thinks and sort of retreats again, tries something else out. Uh, Does that seem like a fair assessment or do we think that he actually does sort of have a coherent or a cohesive idea at this point of where he wants to go? Paul, why don't you take that? I think that most historians have um, underestimated the degree to which Roosevelt had, you know, a progressive uh, ideology. Uh, He's usually depicted as just being an opportunist and a pragmatist Mm -hmm. and an experimenter. Uh, but in a way, there's something very progressive about opportunism and pragmatism and, and responding to contingencies in that uh, if you believe that really there are no timeless principles and what you believe and what you pursue is going to depend upon changing circumstances, uh, then changing your, your policies uh, in accord with, with history is, is perfectly appropriate for a, uh, for a progressive. And I think Wilson did that, too. Uh, he had a long uh, paper trail as an academic uh, for decades before he, he went into politics. But even the way that Wilson pursued the uh, nomination and the presidency in 1912 showed a lot of contradiction and, and inconsistency. So, uh, I mean, we're not we're not here primarily to talk about Wilson, but I but but I have to ask. You said that Wilson went into the presidency with a good idea of what he wanted to do. Yet you've also said that in 1912, he ran almost as a Burkean conservative who was interested in uh, breaking up trusts and decentralizing power. Was he simply being deceptive? (laughs) Well, uh, you can never tell what goes on in the uh, uh, hearts and minds of individuals in history, but uh, I think it would be, and, and Wilson did say, you know, you, you have to, in a democracy, you have to, I think he said, you know, fish for the majority. And you can only get that majority when that majority is, is ready. So uh, I might prefer this policy, but if I don't think the American people are ready for that yet, then I'm not going not gonna to push it. And I, I, think, I think that's uh, the point I made earlier. That was the same attitude that FDR had about when the American people were going to be ready to get more involved in uh World, world affairs in World War II. Mm. Lauren, any more on that? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I guess I think one of the differences might be, and, and, and this be sort of more of a but I, I think I absolutely agree that I think Wilson was sort of a policy opportunist, but when, when I think he had a very clear goal what he wanted to do with the institutions of government in terms of 
a greater role for bureaucracy, it's a real expansion of the administrative state, uh, moving into a sort of science of politics as opposed to the sort of older understanding of statesmanship. Uh, and so in his, I think he has absolutely sort of policy opportunity in terms of how he gets there. But the vision that I think he had for the bureaucratic state seems pretty stable uh, over time. And I wonder if, if, if Wilson, or I'm sorry, if Roosevelt has something similar uh, about what he thinks institutions should look like, or if he really is just the sort of progressive pragmatist, you know, throwing out different ideas to see where the, where the majority uh, bites. One of the, I, I'm, I'm personally very interested in the relationship of Franklin Roosevelt to, to progressivism. And, and, and everything you're both saying makes sense, but something gives me pause. Uh, Otis, uh, Otis Graham uh, wrote a book called An Encore for Reform, which is about how the original progressives, those who were, those of the, of, of the, 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 the Teddy Roosevelt Wilson era, who were still around in the 1930s, how they regarded the New Deal. And he concludes that most of them, I mean, you know, there were some who were big supporters. There were some who faulted the New Deal for not going far enough. But a larger group than either of those said that they disapproved of the New Deal. And they said that uh, they gave a number of reasons for this. Some of them, I think, had just become cranky old, you know, gotten cranky as they got older and were, were more negative. But but one pers- one consistent view that you saw among the New Deal naysayers, among the old progressives, was that the vision of progressivism always held up the national interest. And F- and maybe FDR at the time of the Commonwealth Club address was that kind of progressive. And maybe in 1933 and into 1934, he was still that kind of progressive. But then at a certain point, he gave that up and became interested in mobilizing specific interest groups and building coalitions instead of, uh, in- instead of having a-, a coherent vision of the national interest in mind. What do the two of you think of that argument? I think Lauren would have more to say about that than, uh, than I would, but yeah, my impression has always been that uh, the progress, well, what the New Deal does by, and you mentioned the, the phrase before of, of countervailing power, uh, the idea that there is no national interest, there's just you know uh, shifting uh, coalitions of interest groups, and the job of the government is to make sure that no one of them becomes uh, overweening, uh, and the idea that uh, big business had become too powerful. And so we need to establish big labor to counteract uh, that. That this is a kind of perversion of uh, Madison's argument to the Tenth Federalist, uh, that you, know, you can't eliminate faction, you just have to deal with it as best you can. And instead, it turns uh, factionalism into a, a positive good. Uh, and I think that, and that, that the attempt of the New Deal is to try to say that James Madison was the founder of New Deal you know, interest group liberalism. Uh, is one of their another one of their great uh, historical fables. Mm-hmm. Okay, Laura, Lauren, rather. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I I haven't seen you know, Graham's argument in uh, in detail, but but I think there's something to be said for the fact that you know a- any time you are uh, sort of going through the process that, that, uh, that we're going through, you're going to, you might start out with a fair amount of agreement on certain kinds of broad ends, but eventually it does become a kind of interest group game. And I don't see any way around that in the kind of political, uh, the political world that, that he was inhabiting at that time. Um, so I think that's both a fair assessment, but I also think it's, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily a condemnation of him. I think it might've been unavoidable given the sort of, again, sort of how things develop anytime you're, you're pursuing a, a massive political agenda like that. Gotcha. Um, why don't we talk a little bit more about the, uh, the New Deal in practice? I know Paul has mentioned uh, the National Industrial Recovery Act. One of the other documents that, uh, that we had here for tonight was uh, FDR's fireside chat of July 24th, where he, where he really talks about the, uh, uh, the, the NIRA in detail. Um, how might the NIRA be seen as a natural outgrowth of what FDR was talking about in his Commonwealth Club address? Uh, 
Well, one part of the uh, NIRA was supposed to be the promotion of uh, independent labor unions in uh, Section uh, 7A, I think it was, of the Act, where uh, we the, the idea of the NR, NIRA was that we're going to allow businesses to um, limit production and raise prices, that we're going to promote uh, cartels uh, in the American economy, allow businesses to draw up their own codes of fair competition. But the quid pro quo for that was supposed to be that uh, they were supposed to raise wages and agree to bargain with uh, with unions. So again, this is one of the ways in which the idea that uh, you know, a business is going to be given a, a privilege, an exemption from the antitrust laws. But in exchange for that, they would have to uh, uh, give something over to to organize labor. Hmm. And when it didn't work out that way, you ended up with a, a separate uh, act, the, the Wagner Act, that uh, empowered unions apart from um, uh, doing anything for, for business. So I think the, the seeds for future uh, New Deal policies were, were in the uh, NIRA. And as, I'm sorry. And even after the NIRA, the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional in 1935, and it probably had broken down anyway, but it was continued in similar policies for particular industries. So truckers, the trucking industry, for example, got its own little NIRA where they could limit competition and you couldn't be licensed uh, to establish a, uh, a new trucking firm unless you got the permission of the Interstate Commerce Commission. Uh, there were similar uh, cartel-like arrangements for uh, oil producers and coal and things like that. So uh, rather than the NIRA's proposal of you know, managing the entire economy, you ended up with you know, politically connected uh, industries that got their own little NIRAs, and organized labor was perhaps the most important of those. Uh, Lauren, you care to chime in on this? I know I called it well. I mean, it, it, it I think was part of this overall. Um, you know, at the same time that you have this condemnation of monopoly, you have the the creation of a kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's there's an argument to be made that you see here the sort of the the foundation of what becomes sort of the the crony capitalism of of later uh, you know, the 60s and 70s, where you have uh, again the sort of regulation with an eye toward helping entrenched players and and uh, deepening monopoly in a lot of areas. Is it? I'd like to explore uh, Roosevelt's relationship to the labor unions a bit more. Um, because my sense is that, that he was late to the party on the Wagner Act. The Today, Wagner Act is considered part of the New Deal, but it, it really was Wagner's, <laughs> it was really Wagner's thing, and FDR really only jumped on board when it became clear that it was, uh, that it was going to pass, and, and so FDR kind of wanted to take some credit for it. Um, is it fair to say that FDR would have preferred to get gains for labor via regulation than through the action of unions? Yes, I think both he and members of his administration, uh, people like Francis Perkins, his uh, secretary of labor, uh, wanted that. And the AFL unions, at least, uh, they had a long tradition of opposing uh, things like minimum wage laws and uh, uh, you know, social policies for labor because they wanted unions to be able to use their economic bargaining power to get those benefits through uh, through collective bargaining. And mm -hmm. so Roosevelt's shift, and Roosevelt had an, a lot of progressives were suspicious of independent labor unions. And Roosevelt especially had a kind of sense of noblesse oblige that, uh, you know, that the government had an obligation to take care of workers, but there was always a whiff of kind of uh, sort of anarchy and syndicalism uh, in independent uh, labor unions. Mm. And it wasn't until the Supreme Court struck down uh, the NRA that Roosevelt came around to support the, uh, the Wagner Act. Yeah, okay. My, you know what, my sense is more that the, the, the NRA uh, is, I mean, the, the, the main point of the NRA is the formation of the, uh, of the industrial cartels and the control of, of quote-unquote cutthroat competition which was supposedly constantly drive, driving down prices. And so much of the thrust of the New Deal was to turn things around and drive prices upward. So that leads to all sorts of experiments with the currency as well. Um, 
NRA, the, uh, uh, but uh, uh, Gerald Swope, the president of General Electric, apparently came to Hoover with a plan very similar to the National Industrial Recovery Act. And Hoover's answer was, this is the closest thing to fascism that I've ever seen proposed in the, in, in the United States and, and dismissed it out of hand. Yeah. Um, we have a question here from Joe Rooney. Uh, this pertains to the, the court packing plan. Uh, Roosevelt claims that the court packing plan would promote, quote, a system of living law. Uh, this seems somewhat cons- inconsistent with Roosevelt's claim that he was in favor of, quote, actions through legislation. Did Roosevelt envision the court getting out of the way or a court that would push a progressive agenda forward? Uh, I think it was the, the latter. And this had to do with Roosevelt's experience as governor of New York, where he had a, a very good relationship with the New York Court of Appeals, the, the highest court in New York. And this sort of takes us back to, again, Woodrow Wilson and the early progressive view that the separation of powers is outdated and is getting in the way of uh, what we need to do to deal with current social and economic problems. Uh, so Roosevelt used the metaphor of the, the three-horse team that Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court all needed to pull together. And it's really not that he wanted the Supreme Court to stop striking down New Deal legislation, but he wanted them to advance it and to be on the side uh, of, of progressive government. And this is, again, where uh, Louis Brandeis, who uh, Wilson had appointed to the Supreme Court in 1916, uh, also thought this way about how the Supreme Court should be uh, not a check or a balance on the so-called political branches, but one of the political branches. And that's why Roosevelt stuck with his plan to tack the court for so long, even after it was so obviously politically impossible, because he had a larger vision of sort of re- restructuring uh, the American government. It's, uh, it's odd that Brandeis had that attitude, considering he was one of the votes in favor of striking down uh, the NIRA. Yeah, that's because that's he was an old fashioned, uh, he wanted a decentralized economy. He really was a Jeffersonian yeah. in the sense that he wanted a uh, you know small sort of uh, uh, you know, decentralized uh, small business and and you know agrarian economy. I want to ask you a question that gets back to the Commonwealth Club address, um, and and I'm and I'm struck by the the contrast between the the detail that shows up here and the overall emphasis of his, of, of his campaign, which is, uh, you know, it's easy to see why FDR's campaign was largely content free. Um, he had a pretty good sense that he was going to win the election no matter what, that the, thanks to the, thanks to the, the depression, Hoover had been discredited and that therefore being too specific with any given policy could only alienate people. So all he had to do was play it safe. Why then does he decide to tip his hand so much? Right. I mean, Lauren mentions that that the reaction to this is, wow, this does sound like socialism. Um, It it, it seems like it seems like a, a bad risk and completely out of character with the rest of his his campaign. And, and, And correct me if I'm wrong, but after this speech, he goes back to playing it safe. Um, why do this? Is it, is it, is it simply a test? Does, does he think this is going to resonate? Help me understand this, please. I think it's, I mean, I think it's just a test. I think he was, um, you know, he was the, I mean, the, the speech writer here is a, is an academic, you know, it's one of his most academic speeches. I think he was, he was being encouraged to test the waters and very quickly found out that those waters were not amenable and, and so backtracked. Yeah. Paul, anything more yeah, on that? As, as I said, there were, there were other speeches during the campaign where there was also some pushback. And so you're, and you're absolutely right. The basic point was that uh, he's not going to go out on a limb in an election that's uh, perfectly safe. And um, there were you know, a couple of times where he you know, pushed the envelope and yet did quickly step back from that. So uh, mm. Roosevelt is is one of the hardest people to sort of uh, pin down because he didn't put a lot of stuff in you know, in writing. There's he, people came away from him with you know very disparate impressions of what he had in mind. Uh, he he appeared to like to play 
his advisors off of one another and keep his options open. Uh, his diplomacy was uh, certainly a lot like that. So he's he's very foxy, and so difficult to uh, 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 you know, plumb what his what his motives were. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've spent my share of time <laughs> studying Roosevelt. Um, there, there are no diaries that 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 really give his true insights. His letters, even to his children, are really quite devoid of sub of, of substance, right? So, yeah, I mean, there 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 are some politicians. Uh, Hiram Johnson. There's a great collection of Senator Hiram Johnson of California. His letters to his sons, which are tremendous. You get a real sense as you're reading him. No matter what Hiram Johnson may say in a campaign speech or on the floor of the Senate, this is what he really feels. He's really confiding. But there was nobody that Roosevelt really, uh, really confided with or confided in. Uh, and, and, no, and, and no diaries, no memoirs. Uh, so in many ways, the, the, the researcher is left scratching his or her head and wondering what is, what is the real Roosevelt? Uh, is, this, is this something that uh, that you have encountered as well, Lauren? Um, yeah, I mean, I whenever I teach uh, teach Roosevelt um, in particular, and this is partly why I asked the question earlier about sort of whether whether people th- sort of think that he has a kind of overall goal because it's hard to find one if you look at his writing. It's hard to sort of see how different speeches and different uh, sort of policy moves fit into an overall goal. And so really we're, we're viewing him in retrospect uh, and, and we see this, you know, we associate him with the new deal, uh, but it's not clear that that would, it's not clear that you could have seen that coming and it's not clear that it fits into sort of an overall philosophy that he has. Yeah. I think you could see some of it more, especially in the second term. Uh, that's why the, the question about the court packing plan was uh, was very il- illustrated this very well that that revealed uh, the, what historians some at least have seen as a deeper and more coherent uh, political philosophy. And then when the court packing plan uh, went bad, uh, his effort to purge the Democratic Party, uh, his effort to reorganize the executive branch and to establish a, a unitary executive uh, later on. I think you saw more of a uh, an ideological consistency uh, in it, but in the first campaign, that's that's not not so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes more coherent, but in many ways, there's there's something deeply sinister about these. <laughs> I, I mean, the court packing, uh, executive reform, and then and then the and then the the, the purge, and of course. The term purge wasn't his. This was this was assigned to it by his uh, by his political enemies. Um, all of these seem to give color to the suggestion by his opponents that FDR had in mind being more than president. That he was a uh, that, that 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 he was a, a budding dictator. Yeah. Is there anything to this? Uh, well, I think that Roosevelt. There's certainly well, I'm going to come. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Please go no, ahead. go ahead, Paul. Yeah. All right. Uh, there, there certainly was a lot of okay. personal. Well, I was actually. Uh, gonna... <laughs> I think you're on a little bit of a delay. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. I'll jump. I'll jump in, and then, um, uh, I was actually going to comment on this um, when when we were discussing uh, Roosevelt's attitude toward, uh, for example, the labor unions, and uh, and combined with. For example, his um, his support for uh, a sort of Supreme Court, and and I think Paul was right that the sort of the, his view was that all three branches of the government would be sort of pulling in tandem, and I think that this points to a really deep ambivalence that Roosevelt had about the people, and, and it's it's interesting again in retrospect because many sort of view Will's uh, I'm sorry Roosevelt as being sort of a a friend of the people in the sense that you know he reached out he had these fireside chats right he was sort of he 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 tried to sort of bring uh, policy or or politics to the people uh, directly to their homes, but there's a deep ambivalence I think in in his attitude toward the people as a sort of actual group, uh, as well as toward the the concept of democracy. Um, and and I, I love the way that he. Did 
defines democracy in this particular piece, you know, this never ending seeking for better things, right? He's, he's quoting his friend, uh, Meredith uh, Nicholson. Um, but, you know, that's not, that, that's a, that's a very bizarre definition of democracy from a, from a sort of political science perspective, right? Uh, and so there is this very, I, I think you do, or I think, Don, you're right to see something sort of sinister here, where he, he doesn't seem to be advocating for democracy uh, because he trusts the people to be uh, decision makers in any kind of capacity. I think he really is looking for a way in which uh, he can expand the executive power and then he himself can sort of take the reins in, in a bunch of different ways. Okay. No, uh, absolutely. The, uh, the ambivalence of progressives about democracy is, I think, one of the central themes of progressivism and modern liberalism, where on the one hand, they're, you know, they're trying to uh, make the government more responsive to the people. And if you look at the ways in which they change uh, sort of uh, American electoral laws and things like that, it seems like they mean it. On the other hand, they're talking about developing a bureaucratic state where experts are the ones who are really uh, running things. And if you look at voter participation rates, as especially as the progressives attack the parties, and the parties were the, the organizations that mobilized the people and connected them to the government, uh, you see another, another story. And yeah, Roosevelt, I think Roosevelt trusted the people because he believed that they, that they loved him and they supported him so much. And after the 1936 election, he really had this idea you know, sort of a, a Napoleonic, uh, maybe Jacksonian idea that, that he embodied the people. And he stuck with the, the court packing plan against the advice of so many of his advisors because he thought the people are, are with me and I'm going to go over the heads of the Senate and appeal directly to the people. And I'm going to purge the Democratic Party of people who, are, uh, who had opposed me. Roosevelt took this stuff very personally. But he took it personally because I think he thought that he was the American people. And this is exactly why the founders established an indirect electoral college system for electing the president. They didn't want anybody to be able to claim that they were the, the embodiment of the sovereign people. And that did go to Roosevelt's head. Any final thoughts from either of you? We're almost out of time. Oh, I, I would like to just say that um, after the... the Court packing plan in 37, and lots of things go wrong in 38. The economy collapses, the Roosevelt right. recession, and then, of course, the war uh, puts all of this to the side. But Roosevelt comes back to these same themes and is even clearer about them in his 1944 uh, State of the Union address, where he talks about an economic bill of rights. So clearly, the post-war agenda for him and for Harry Truman and the Fair Deal and for Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society is, is fleshing out what he first broached in, the, in this speech. Hmm. Lauren, final thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just going to uh, actually what Paul just said. I think one of the fascinating things about reading this is how many of the themes are still very much prevalent, especially uh, post-2008, where I hear um, political leaders talking about sort of economic rights and talking about sort of this new role of government. And uh, so it's, it's fascinating to me sort of how little has changed uh, since since uh, Roosevelt um, uh gave this talk and, uh, and certainly how, um, how influential I think his vision of what American democracy should look like uh, has been. All right. Well, I want to thank both of our panelists as well as our participants for their questions. Uh, I just want to remind you about the email that you will be receiving with a link for a certificate of participation. If you have enjoyed this evening's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. Both of our distinguished guests here this evening uh, teach in that program. Um, those, uh, those courses are offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can find <clears throat> excuse me, more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. You can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you will receive by email next week. Share that with your colleagues as well as on social media, and we would be most appreciative. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, March 21st, when our subject will be George Kennan's Long Telegram. At that time, I will be joined by Dr. David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin at Platteville and Dr. Stephen Tootle of the College of the Sequoias. The recommended readings for that webinar have been posted. So we hope to see you back here on March 21st 
at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks again and have a lovely evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.